Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here. Baptism Sunday, that's always fun. Uh, before we get into it, I'd love to pray with you, and uh, we'll be to the baptisms in just a couple minutes. Well, let's be sure that we say that rightly. It's not going to be a couple, um, but n- not very long. Um, Here's an opportunity. If you're new to New Hope, by the way, welcome. Glad that you're here. But if you've been here a while and you're looking for a way to serve, Debbie down in Children's Ministry let us know that last weekend there were 240 individuals down there in the Children's End, and they could really use some additional help in the areas of um, the nursery and in uh, the classrooms. So if that's a gifting that you have and you want to help teach children, or maybe you technologically gifted and you could help with registrations, It would just be a really great opportunity for us to build the volunteerism base here at the church. So speak with Debbie down in the children's registration area, and she'll tell you how to get plugged in. Um, I uh, am aware that there's um, 14 baptisms today, and three of them were in the first service, so that means 11 are in this service. And then we had a fourth one in the first service because an individual just kind of came up and said, I need to be baptized. So that was at the end. I don't know if that's going to happen today, but um, with 11 baptisms, I'm very aware we need to get right to it um, because they have a story to tell each of them, and it's just an amazingly celebratory time. So let's pray together that God would keep us on point, and we will prepare our hearts for what He has to say. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank You for what is about to take place here in this auditorium with individuals who are willing to be identified and not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. So we ask that you would use this time to bring glory to the name of Christ, that you would advance your kingdom through this church. But right now we ask in this moment that you would focus our attention on your word and what you want to say to us, how you want to speak to each of us in our individual walk with you. So Father, I'm praying for every single soul seated here or those who are virtually part of the broadcast that your word would go forth in power. And we ask for that in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Just know if this feels a little bit fractured, it's not me, it's you, okay? Because I know exactly where I'm going with this. I'm just going to try and keep you on point here so you understand it's all going to come together at the end. Here's my thought. If you are weary today, weary of the division in our world, of the war, the chaos, the diseases, the sickness, the broken relationships. If you're weary of those things and many, 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 many more, and you feel like you need a deliverer who can make all things new, the good news is his name is Jesus. And he has come exactly for those reasons. He is the ultimate deliverer. But for those of us who claim the name of Christ and say that we align ourselves with Him as our deliverer, that one has expectations of those who say they belong to Him. One of those expectations is found in James chapter 1. Let me show you this on the screen. Verse 22, prove yourself doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Because there's a great potential that we can say things with our mouth but not actually mean it with our heart, and we delude ourselves, God says. We fool ourselves into thinking that we actually belong when we don't actually belong. 
That's kind of a good framework for where Judges chapter 2 is going this morning. If you have a hard copy of the Bible or an electronic copy of the Bible, go ahead and turn there or you'll see the verses on the screen. If you're keeping a mental timeline through this E2E journey, the Eternity to Eternity series, where we're at right now is about 40 years removed from the events of the Battle of Jericho. So a whole generation has passed. 40 more years have gone by. Here's kind of a brief summary to help you understand what's taken place. Israel as a nation has been freed from Egypt where they were in slavery. They've been brought to the threshold of what we call the nation of Israel today, but they knew it as Canaan land where the Canaanites lived. And the Bible refers to it as the promised land. They've entered into the promised land and through Joshua, who is a warrior leader, he led them through the conquest of the land and they've pretty much secured the entire promised land in principle, but not all of it. Primarily, they've secured it. And as a nation, they became very comfortable with where they were at. And Israel as a nation took their eyes off God because they became attracted to shinier toys, new things that popped up on the horizon that they were very attracted to, things that the other nations chased after. And if you've walked with God for any length of time, you know that disobedience to God always creates chaos. In the midst of ancient Israel's disobedience, the amazing thing you find in the book of Judges is that God continues to be gracious to them, and He continues to be merciful. And so when they cry out for help, He raises up deliverers known as judges. Judges is not about what you think it's about. I want to show you the definition for the word judge, because most people don't have the book of Judges on their must-read list. They think the name is kind of a turn-off in itself. I want to help you to get a new understanding of this. Let's look at the definition for the word judge, first of all, shafat. Now, it means in the beginning what you think it means. If you read the first part of the definition, that's one who pronounces judgment. But you really need to follow the definition all the way through to the end and see what it's saying here. This is one who will vindicate or punish, and by extension, and this is what's really going on in the book of Judges. These are individuals who govern, and then it amplifies by saying they're the avengers, they're the defenders, they're the executors of judgment. It's in this latter sense that we find these individuals in the Old Testament book of Judges, not serving as magistrates sitting on a bench in a courtroom. But rather, these are action-based individuals, really warrior individuals. It's a warrior class of people. So they study a situation, they come to a conclusion of how best to approach a situation, and then they execute appropriate action, and their action is always deliverance. So it actually could be more accurate to call the book of Judges the book of deliverers, because that's the role that they've taken on. And the New Testament actually writes about these individuals and calls them people of great faith. They're both men and women. Men and women served in this role as judges. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews chapter 11. And what more shall I say for the time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Japheth, those are four of the judges, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. 
that right there pretty much captures the entire book. That's what's going on in the book of Judges. It is action-packed, and some parts of it deserve an R rating because it is so incredibly graphic. And towards the end, it becomes very, very dark. But it's also an authoritative voice for today. Let me put on the screen for you Judges 21, 25. This is the characteristic of this period of time. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's why it's authoritative for today. What was happening then has a repeat cycle in the 21st century. And we find that it speaks into our world. So this book is actually going to teach us how we're supposed to respond in the midst of dark times and what God expects of His people. Now, during this era of the Judges, it's about 1300 B.C., roughly 1300 years before Christ came on the scene, and it is a very turbulent time in the Middle East. And I know you're thinking, well, what's new about that, Mark? It's always seeming to be a turbulent time in the Middle East. But at this period of time, the nations are constantly striving in warfare, fighting for supremacy. And in the midst of all the unrest and all of the division, God calls out Israel to be this shining example of what it looks like to do life with God. He wants people to see, what is it like if you belong to God? So He asks them to be a light of His ways to all the nations, but instead of following God, they decide that they're going to adapt to the culture that surrounds them. So what we find is actually not a very good legacy, but a legacy of real darkness in the book of Judges, a national legacy. Here's three examples for you. Judges 3. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth, or Judges 8, 33. The sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals, or Judges 10. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Asheroth, and they forsook the Lord. And so for those reasons, and many, many, many more, studying the book of Judges is a bit shocking because of where Israel came from and the ways that God rescued them. But it's also this huge reminder that your God is unwavering in His commitment to you. He's unwavering in His promises and carrying out His plans. And because that is true, He expects, and better to say, He actually demands loyalty. Thus, you find James writing, don't be just speakers of the Word, be doers of the Word. Don't be just people who hear the Word, but actually carry out what God calls you to do. Carry that thought now into verse 1 with me of Judges chapter 2. It says this, Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. Notice what he says, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? This is not a good day when God shows up at your door and says, what did you do? Imagine your doorbell rings at home. You go to the door and you open it up, and the very first thing the person on the other side of the door says, what did you do? going to cause the hair on the back of your neck to stand up. You immediately begin self-evaluating, like, what did I do? I'm not sure. Tell me what I did. The Lord Himself is actually confronting His people with evidence of betrayal. 
We're going to come back to his opening statement there in just a moment. First, understand who's actually speaking here. This is Jesus in the book of Judges. It's one of three incarnate appearances, what we would call a theophany theologically. He's referred to as the angel of the Lord here, but the word angel is translated from the Hebrew language in an unfortunate way into the English language. The word is actually malak, and it means envoy or one who speaks the word of God. So we have this one whom the English version translates as the angel of the Lord, but it doesn't begin in the standard way of like an angel appearing on the scene and saying, thus saith the Lord. There's a reason for that, because this is the Lord. So this angel, this malak, this term is never used of human beings. It's always used of someone who's a, a representation of God. So we have the words, an angel of the Lord, and the words, the angel of the Lord in Scripture. An angel of the Lord refers to multiple individuals. The angel of the Lord refers to one specific individual. And what this one communicates is something only God would say. Because you're noticing as you read it, he's speaking in the first-person language. Pay attention to how many times he's speaking in the first-person pronoun. I brought you. I am the one who have sworn to you. I have never broken my promises. You have not obeyed me. So you have to come to the conclusion very quickly that this is a manifestation of God the Son. This is the same one who showed up in the burning bush with Moses. This is the same one who showed up at Jericho in the conversations with Joshua. Remember that conversation? Joshua said, are you for us or against us? God said, no, because I'm about my plan. I'm about my purposes, Joshua. God had to fix his theology. Well, this isn't about fixing theology here. This is a much more severe conversation. God is actually rebuking them because God is ticked off. At this point, Israel has abandoned God, and they've walked away even though God has been faithful to them. And so what we're hearing in our minds through this is an echo of Exodus 23, when God said, there's going to be an angel, a representation of me among you. You better pay attention to him. Look at me on the screen, Exodus 23, verse 20. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So this one shows up on the scene and he's communicating directly from God as God, and he says, according to verse 1, I will never break my commandment with you, my covenant with you. I am not a covenant breaker, but you are. That's how he's calling them out. So he goes on to say this in verse 2, you have not obeyed me. What did you do? What have you done? And in the Hebrew language, it's actually literally written this way. You have not listened to my voice. What do we know about who Jesus is? He's saying here, this is translated this way, you're not listening to what I speak. 
Now, to obey someone literally means to listen to what someone speaks and then act on it. And he's saying, you're not hearing my word. What do we know about Jesus in terms of who He's called to be in the New Testament? The Word of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So the Word has always existed. God the Son has always been. And this Word shows up on the scene and says, you are not paying attention to me, and you're not listening to my voice. No wonder God is ticked off. This is a shocking violation. Israel is expected to obey. They've agreed to obey, and yet they're still entering into these agreements with the Canaanites, and they've not torn down the altars of Baal, and they've explicitly been directed to do that. So verse 3, therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. Now, that's a really confusing punishment. Why does God pronounce that as a punishment and let them go deeper into this thing with these gods, small g? God is quoting God here, and He's linking this statement directly with earlier warnings from the book of Numbers, chapter 33, and the book of Judges, chapter 23. In all those places, God said, their gods, small g, will be a snare to you. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word snare can mean a trap. So we're thinking in terms of a trap when we think of this description here. These remaining nations will be a trap to them. So let's think of a mousetrap for a moment. Everybody's seen a mousetrap. We know it's got a spring on it. It's got a striker bar. You pull it back, and it's got a bait plate in the middle. And that striker bar stings when it comes down. Israel is going to find that these foreign gods, small g, were going to be the striker bar, and it's going to trap them, and they won't be able to escape from their mess. Because God previously had warned them, you're going to face an increasingly hostile nation, and they're going to keep coming against you. And now He's saying, you're going to be ensnared in your own reckless stupidity, and you're going to be infected by a disease called false worship. Now, heads up, when they hear all this from God, they know who they're listening to. When they're confronted with this, they begin to weep and weep and weep, and this place is called Bochum because Bochum actually means weeping, the place of weeping. But hear this, heads up before we read it. These tears are superficial. There's no evidence whatsoever that this lip service that they're making is actually going to be reflected in their walk because there's no measurable change of lifestyle. And if you know anything about God at all, you know that our God is not impressed with false promises. He's not impressed with external repentance. God looks for a torn heart, not torn clothing. He's always looking at the inside, and as you saw two weeks ago, He knows what posers look like. So He's calling them out. Verse 4, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochum, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. And at first, their reaction looks really good. It's like, wow, revival has broken out. These people are very serious. They want to get right with God. So you notice there are three reactions. First, they they begin weeping. These are real tears. They're not so hard that they're not going to respond. And the second thing they do is they name this place Bochum because it means the place of weeping. And, And the third thing that they do is they sacrifice to God. But these are tears of regret and not repentance. 
You can have tears of regret. You can have tears that fool people. You can have tears that are not genuine. Crying does not necessarily imply repentance. Y'all heard the term crocodile tears? Crocodiles get water, moisture built up in the corner of their eyes, and it looks like they're crying, but they're not. It's just a moisturizing. Children are really good at fake crying, right? My grandchildren are very good at it, and I can spot it a long ways away. My wife can too, but she doesn't care if it's fake crying. She just goes to them anyways. But kids are really good at that. We know what fake crying looks like. Well, this isn't necessarily fake crying because you're looking at a nation that's in tension and there's division and they're in a bad place nationally and they don't want to be there. So on the surface, it looks like it's a really positive response. But if you continue to read the story, what you find out is this is really empty. As a matter of fact, this will be the last time they actually respond to God in this way. This is a very short-lived revival because there's no legitimate heart change among these people. I hear this, church. I know a lot of you are praying for change in your nation. You want to see things repaired and healed. You cannot change the direction of a nation without a heart change of the persons that make up that nation. There has to be a change internally first. You can't change direction unless you fix what the real problem is. So James calls it out, and he calls it out among God's people. Look at James 1 again as we started with this. James 1, verse 22, prove yourself doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Here's how you know their crying is fake. If the remorse had been genuine, the book of Judges would have never needed to be written. The entire book is a record of this apostasy of Following God, walking away from God. Following God, walking away from God. But if they had really genuine repentance, you wouldn't be reading this book, this book of delivers. There'd be no need to write it. Now, the, the next few verses, we're just going to skip over them, verses 6 through 9. It's just a summary of the end of Joshua's life. And here's how it's summarized in verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which He had done for Israel." I just shared that verse with you two weeks ago. And you might look at that and say, what? How is that possible 40 years removed? These people don't know God. Track it. Joshua's generation is gone. They were the warrior class who secured freedom for the nation. They fought for the freedom of the nation. And yet this next generation is accelerating down a highway to destruction. And it leaves us in the modern era in 21st century saying, how in the world is that possible? Well, God tells us right there, they did not know the Lord. But don't think of that as intellectual knowing. In the Bible, when the Bible speaks of knowing, it's not talking about head knowledge as much as it's talking about heart knowledge. So when we see the word knowing appearing in the Old Testament many times, it's talking about the relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and wife, who know each other intimately, and they have deep relationship with each other. We're told that these individuals don't know God. Here's how we know they're not thinking about intellect here. Forty years removed, there's no way they're going to forget or not know about how God freed them from Egypt and from slavery. There's not any way possible they're not have going to have heard about the Red Sea or about the rescuing in the wilderness. They're smart people. 
You know your national history. They knew their national history. But what we're being told here is they didn't have a relationship with God in a personal way. It's like a comparison today between an agnostic and a true believer. An agnostic would say they believe there is a God, but a true believer says, I actually know that God and I have relationship with Him. Well, the writer of Judges is telling us because the memory of God's actions died out with Joshua's generation, Israel stopped walking with God. And here's what we should be paying attention to. You're in your 20s right now? You're getting to the place where you're about to have a family and raise children? Pay very close attention to what's going on here because it only took the failure of one generation to allow God to fade from the national memory. The failure of one generation that stopped talking about God. And because of this propensity that we have to forget or not pass it on, Jesus calls out the church. He says the two most important things you can do in the church and the function of the church to represent and be a memorial to me, one is communion. We do communion to remember because we are prone to forget. The other one is baptism. What these individuals are about to do, they're, they're willing to say publicly before hundreds and hundreds of people, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You do that every generation and keep doing that and keep doing that. God is not going to fade out of the national memory, but here He actually did. Each generation coming up of God's people has to be willing to say, there will not be spiritual amnesia on my watch. I'm not going to forget about Him. When anyone loses sight of God's grace, they lose sight of God. You lose sight of what God has done for you, you lose sight of God, and therefore it leads to losing any sense of obligation to God. And what you find in the book of Judges, all that follows in this book is a consequence of Israel's national amnesia, this total spiritual loss of memory. Verse 11, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Even if you've never read the Bible before, let me tell you this, it never ends well when the sentence starts off, so-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's just a really bad way to start a paragraph. And six times in the book of Judges, Israel deserts the very God who delivered them. And you've just seen almost 200 years of history summarized in that one paragraph. And during this period of time, here's what's going on. There's apostasy, there's walking away from God, and then they go into slavery, into servitude, and then God sends them a rescuer and they repent, and He brings deliverance, and then they repeat the cycle over and over and over. It's like a whole bunch of mini exoduses from Egypt because they're willfully overlooking God's mighty works, and instead they're turning to the gods of the culture, which have become a trap to them. And here's the real problem we have to identify in our generation today. It is a real problem now, just like it was then, when you can see and live in the prosperity of the culture that you're in. The gods of their culture offered so much free sexual behavior, whatever you wanted, lots of fertility, lots of prosperity, and great security. But rather than finding freedom, they're finding themselves like a fly in a spider's web. 
Verse 13, so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. Just a quick lesson for you because you're going to carry this forward in the next couple of weeks. Christmas is coming like a freight train, so we're only going to be in this three more weeks after today. And we'll begin the Christmas study around December 10th. But for these next three weeks, carry this thought forward with you. When you study the Canaanites, you need to understand that this is talking about a culture and not an ethnic group. It's talking about a way of life. It is the primary population of what we call Israel today, this land of the Canaanites, right around the middle of the second millennium. These Baals are being worshipped by individuals all over the Middle East, especially those in Canaan land. And it's not a proper name. Baal means the one who owns me or my master. So in a common vernacular for them at that period of time, when they hear the word Baal, they actually bring it down and they boil it down to being my husband, the one whom I'm in relationship with. When the title is actually applied to a god, small g, it, it functions as a title and it's used for many of the gods in the ancient world. So in their culture, among the Canaanite people, it usually is referring to this one who is my master who is also the god of rain, the god of agriculture, and he's got a title. He's called the Prince of the Earth. So because this God of rain in their mind is controlling things and the vegetation and the agriculture, they want to worship Him. They want prosperity like the rest of the nations. But He's linked with this other one called the Ashtaroth. And Ashtaroth is, is a female figure. And she's carved with highly accentuated female parts, if you get my meaning. And she's the goddess of love. And she's the goddess of war. And in ancient literature, the Ashtaroth pole and, and the Baal pole, these two were lovers. And in the fertility cults of these two, well, let's just say there were no rules. You could do whatever you wanted. Together, these two gods formed a powerful force for prosperity, for protection, and for reproduction. And they behaved in very, very lewd ways if they were part of that cult. That's what Israel's gone towards. Now, I won't describe the lewd ways in a Sunday morning like this, but know this, the, the worst surfacing of it came in the form of baby sacrifice, in which they would literally, I'm sorry to say, burn babies alive. That's what's going on here. Now, Israel is the newcomer on the block. They've previously experienced God in Egypt and in Mount Sinai and in the Red Sea and in the desert wanderings and then at Jericho. But to a new generation who has no experience with God, they're finding it really easy to change allegiance. And they especially, when all the side benefits are included, where you get to do whatever you want. And there's no limitations on your sexual behavior. There's no limitations on how you do business. You can do whatever you want. The Canaanites have good crops. They have shiny chariots. They have lots of kids too. They have plenty of money. They're not such bad people. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Here's a mental picture for you. 
When it says the anger of the Lord burned against someone in the Bible, it, in the Hebrew, it's translating his nose glowed. His nose burned. You ever seen someone so mad that their face turns red to the degree that the tip of their nose turns red? This is the way the Hebrews are associating God's anger at this point, and God is outraged. How do I understand his fury here? His fury has to be interpreted against the backdrop of this extravagant demonstration of grace. He's not held anything back. He's given them everything that they need, and yet they're walking away from him and not obeying him. And he will not passively accept his own people's adulterous affairs. So the calamity that he's designed for them is designed as a chastisement. And it's intended to lead the people back to a legitimate repentance. So he's approaching it this way. You want to be like them? You want to be like the world around you? Fine. I'll let you go. Let's see how that works out for you. And you and I know that forsaking God has consequences, both personally and nationally. So as a people group, they became disorganized, disheartened, divided, and you find the nation in the book of Judges anxious and exhausted. And they've been brought to this place of deep distress and despair, all because of apostasy. And because of the apostasy, he turns them over to their enemies. So we're reading here that God sold them as slaves. It's like repeating Exodus again. Now, who are the plunderers that are taking all their food? Well, I'm not going to reveal that to you yet. That comes out next week. But know this, the real enemy at this point of Israel is God. It's shocking to learn that God has actually turned against them. But here's how I want to end this with you this morning. I want you to see amazing grace in the Old Testament. Read with me the next verse, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Question, just pause right there for a moment. We'll leave the verse on the screen. Do they deserve to be delivered? Let's make this participatory. Do they de deserve to be delivered? Do you deserve to be delivered? No, none of us do. That's amazing grace, isn't it? When you read that in one sentence, God raised up deliverers. He raised up the judges who would deliver them. Very interesting, you don't ever see the name judges without the association of deliverer. The judges are the shafat that I described to you in the beginning, and there's 12 of them that we know of. They wear this designation of judge. And we always see that they delivered. So I want you to see this word to end this today. It's in the back of your notes, but it's on the screen. What these are are individuals who yasha. I want you to follow out the definition with me. Just make your brain power do a little bit of work. I know it's warm in here, but just come on, snap back in it. Look at the definition. To be free. This is what a yasha is. To be free, to be safe, causatively, not just to be free, but when you read these definitions that I show you guys on the screen, when you see that little X symbol, it's talking about amplified. What's amplified? To be free because of this one who does your avenging who defends you, who delivers you, who rescues you, who brings salvation, who gets your victory. So soon after this delivering that these shafats do for them, 
You find this particular nation returning over and over again to the very problems that got them in trouble in the first place. Namely, they're just plain ignoring God. So it's very interesting how intentional verse 17 makes this statement. Look with me now at the screen. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods. So they became spiritual prostitutes, forsaking the one true God for these other gods, small g. What did we say the Baals were called? They were called husbands, forsaking their one true husband for these fake husbands. Really significant language going on here because just like with ancient Israel, the church of Jesus Christ is called to be the bride of Christ. And God says, you call me Lord, but with your actions, you're acting like a harlot. And on the rare occasion when this nation actually does cry out to the Lord in mercy, He's faithful and He raises up these judges to deliver them, to save them. The problem is they get this very, very short memory, and when the immediate crisis is over, they they suffer from this identity amnesia, and the repentance that reads in Scripture is actually revealed to be superficial. Hear this ending. Even though they deserve to be crushed and annihilated because of their abandonment of God, God spares the people. And he spares them through this lifetime of these judges he keeps raising up. But after judge, after judge, after judge, the corruption of the people just increases and increases. And the book becomes darker and darker. And you come to the conclusion, these human judges don't work. This isn't fixing the problem. So it's fascinating to me to find that the book of Judges begins with Jesus arriving on the scene. The ultimate deliverer who has to call his people out and say, what did you do? The entire book points forward to a better, more perfect deliverer, one who will judge in purity and who will yasha in a permanent rescuing fashion. The book of Judges points to Jesus. The whole thing is screaming, we need one who can fix this because the only way to break the cycle of sin, of falling back into it over and over and over and over again is when the one comes to judge, the one who will truly yasha forever. But from this moment in time, it's still 1,300 years away. For you, it happened 2,000 years ago. So if you're in this place where you're tired of the chaos and you're tired of the war and you're tired of the disease, you're tired of the sin and the broken relationships, you need Jesus. You need Him to yesha, to truly deliver for you. And we are not afraid to say at New Hope Church, He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He died for us, and He rose again, and that's why we get to celebrate baptism. Pretty excited about that. I want you to take this knowledge forward with you as you go out the door this morning after the baptisms that we would really walk as those who are doers of the Word and not hearers only. Let's pray together. Father, first and foremost, I lift up to you the individuals who are about to step into the waters of baptism that you would receive it as a fragrant aroma and be very pleased by what you're witnessing. 
And we get to be spectators too, Father. So we pray that You would encourage our heart as we hear the stories. Use this moment to strengthen us, to advance Your kingdom. And Father, we pray that You would hasten the day when the one who is our true Yasha will return. Restore everything, Father. Make all things new. We lift this up to You in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen.